Spoiler alert, when this podcast talks about the books, it talks about it in the context of the entire The Song of Ice and Fire series. And when it does so about the television shows, it does so in the context of the most recent episode. You've been warned. Before the Dragon, a podcast dedicated to George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire and the HBO Game of Thrones prequels franchise. And welcome back to Before the Dragon podcast, where we are exploring George R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood, part of the A Song of Ice and Fire series. We'll also be looking into the prequel series on HBO as it more news comes available. But for now, we're focusing on A Song of Ice and Fire. And it's lovely to be able to hear any of the thoughts that you might have Regarding Fire and Blood, feel free to send emails to Matt's audio blog. That's M-A-T-T-S audio blog at gmail.com. Or you can tweet to at the letter B, the number four, the dragon pod on Twitter. I know that's a mouthful. I never can seem to come up with a good Twitter handle, but that was what was available to me. And so that's what you have at the letter B, the number four, the dragon pod. And that's on Twitter. Again, mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts regarding the chapters, this time around we're going to be tackling five more chapters. Some of them are doozies, so you will get this podcast uh, or this particular recording in at least two podcast episodes on a Monday and a Thursday. My name is Matt Murdick, and it is a pleasure to be joined once again. She's been away for quite a while, but we welcome back to Before the Dragon. It had a different name the last time she was on this podcast, but she is the siren of A Song of Ice and Fire from the East, and by siren, I don't mean anything mean. She's not vicious. She's not a monster. She's not a killer, but her song about The Song of Ice and Fire will draw you in because she's very knowledgeable about the series proper, and we're both finding that we're kind of exploring this new book together uh, with fresh eyes, which will make this a fun conversation Welcome back at Black Eyed Lily on Twitter. Susan, how are you? I'm fine, Matt. Thank you. I'm I'm definitely glad to be back as well. And as uh, as you say, this is definitely new uh, ground for all of us to cover and a little more challenging because I don't feel like I, I know it nearly to the degree that, uh, you know, gone over the the chapters in the main series so many times and know that story almost by heart, I feel like sometimes. And and now all this new information and trying to assimilate it and figure it all out. It's, it's definitely interesting stuff. Yeah. It's kind of a daunting task to look at some of these things. And I know that you and I both talked before we started recording that, uh, you know, we're trying to find parallels within the regular series. Our friend Aziz from the history of Westeros, often likes to say, you know, you can find a lot of foreshadowing in A Song of Ice and Fire by looking back into its history. And you do, you find an awful lot of parallels to things going on in the A Song of Ice and Fire proper modern story uh, that happens to just a single family back here, or at least what happens in the world of Westeros back here uh, several hundred years before. Um, and it's been fascinating to me to find those and, and kind of exhilarating in a way. It's get, At the same time, though, I, I find this style of writing to not be quite as fun as the POV writing. How about you? Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, it doesn't have that narrative interest to to draw us in. I mean, I think it's definitely a little bit better than the initial uh, Princess and the Queen and the uh, Rogue Prince narratives that we got that were in a similar vein to this. I think that George Martin has been able to expand on that now to where when you read it, there is more of a story going on. But again, it is kind of from that historical perspective where it feels like you're reading the history book instead of just a fun novel. And so there's a lot more to it. I mean, you think you have a lot of names in A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, it just just explodes here with all these uh, different people that are referenced, but then you don't get a whole lot about them, so you're trying to keep them all straight. And yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a challenge. <laughs> I agree. I agree, and I, I do. I do like the idea that we're getting things that are seemingly told from a more neutral perspective, a more objective perspective, as opposed to a subjective perspective. 
But at the same time, there's sometimes when I just kind of like go, well, does any of this make any sense <laughs> to the way that I feel that my POVs in the main series are working on? And uh, I appreciate looking at it from both angles. I just, uh, I, I, like you said, it's like reading a history book. And sometimes that can make it a little tough for me just personally in terms of enjoying the read. I do enjoy the information. I, it's just getting through the information that sometimes I find challenging. Right. Definitely. Were you ready to get into these chapters? Sure. Sure. Let's go. Let's start with the Year of Three Brides, 49 AC. Chapter 6. The Year of Three Brides, 49 AC. And Susan, since it's been so long since we heard from you regarding anything with this series or or just with Game of Thrones or anything, I'm going to let you start off wherever you want to start. Again, folks, this is a free-flowing conversation. It's not going to be a recap so to speak. Uh, we just pick out what's important to us. And if we can find a way to connect it, great. And if it comes to where there is no way to resolve it into the next subject, well, we'll just drop it and move on to the next subject. That's uh, that's the only way that I can find my way through all of this information. Susan, go ahead. Give us something. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, what I tried to do was, as I was going through this, I thought about it from the perspective of we often look at how George Martin has used real history, real world history to pull into his characters. And as some of them are a conglomeration of different characters. We know that the War of the Roses was very central to the uh, Lannisters and the, the Starks, who are the parallels to the Lancasters and the Yorks of the War of the Roses. So I was looking for where I could draw those kind of parallels as well as looking at it from where these new characters that uh, these new historical characters that we were looking at mirrored characters within the story itself. So kind of coming at it from both of those perspectives. So as I started to read this about the three brides and starting with Renea, I thought about the fact that here we have someone who marries after she had been, well, a queen twice over, but, um, certainly the second time after dress, but to marry someone of a much lower station after she was a queen. And that's something that's, that's pretty unusual for that to happen. But there is an instance of it in the uh, going back towards the War of the Roses that I think is a pretty interesting little uh, tidbit that it's not that, that she necessarily parallels this person directly, but just the idea of of what happened and how the consequences of marrying after you were a queen can have additional consequences to, to what happens with the realm. And if you look at Henry VII, who was the start of the Tudor dynasty, well, his claim as he came in and killed the last York and took over yeah, he had a, a claim on both his mother and father's side, but both of them were really iffy claims. And the one on his father's side came because his grandfather had married Catherine of Valois. She was one of these French princesses who married one of the earlier Henrys. And she ended up, after her king died, she ended up marrying someone who was a squire to that king. And uh, this was this uh, Owen Tudor, who was started the Tudor family. And there was a big uproar over the fact that uh, the queen married this someone of such a, a lower station than herself. Mm. But that was the, the start of Henry VII. He also, on his mother's side, he had a claim that was a little closer to the Lancasters, though it was also from a bastard branch. So here he has these questionable roots on both sides. And Owen Tudor really got in a lot of trouble for getting married to the queen. It was all a big scandal at the time. And that just reminded me, I thought about that as we looked at Renera marrying this young man so far beneath her in this second son who really didn't have anything to recommend himself other than the fact that uh, it seemed like uh, her true love was his sister. Yeah, uh, there's some interesting things about, uh, and, and again, I'm not sure how to pronounce it either. When she marries this guy at, at the Fair Isle, uh, the second brother, I suppose. As we go through these chapters, it, it seems like 
much of their relationship wasn't really much of a relationship at all. It, it, what's a, in the, like a previous chapter, um, she cites a reason for marrying him is because he was kind to her. <laughs> and uh, Reyna just seems to be one of these characters who I feel is very strong. And in that way, she's compelling. Uh, but at the same time, uh, she has quite a, a bit of uh, trouble herself as she goes through these next few chapters. Um, and I, I love the parallel to, to real history, but I, I find her story to be, you know, she's a very hard woman. Right. Yeah, I thought it interesting how, you know, she, when she was talking with uh, Allison at one point, she compares herself that she was the Visenya to Alisan being the Rainies. And I thought that was very apt in a lot of ways. Those parallels were definitely there. But it seems like she was so shell-shocked after everything she went through with the death of her first husband, the Aegon the Uncrowned, and and then having to be forced to marry uh, Magar, that um, it seemed like she just didn't want to have anything to do with any of this. And I think that's why she kind of fled to this one place where she had found refuge but then later on, she seems to start kind of regretting the fact that she didn't maybe put herself or her daughters forward a little bit more for their claim and so forth. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting situation. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you mentioned Alyssa and uh, her wedding to Rogar uh, was interesting. The golden wedding is, is brought up in this chapter. I guess all weddings in A Song of Ice and Fire have to have a color of some kind. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, we can see that's for the extravagance of it. And it was obviously this really uh, extravagant, big uh, affair that they wanted to, you know, celebrate having to, after all of the troubles that they'd gone through, all the terrible fighting and deaths and things that they had encountered uh, through the whole reign of Magar, I think it was to, to celebrate all that. And I've heard a little bit of you know, listening to other people's discussions about this too, the idea that we may get a parallel with this when we're when we, to look towards maybe young Griff having something like this happen if he ends up, you know, wanting to come in and uh, be trying to be the wonderful savior coming in and and uh, tying up the wounds of the realm and marrying the Dornish princess. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, we may get something kind of like that going on there. But yeah, Alessandra and and the character that she marries, this Baratheon, this Rogar Baratheon, he is very, very much like Robert, isn't he? I would absolutely say so. I mean, here here's a quote from, from this chapter. Uh, Lord Rogar could thus claim that both the blood of the dragon and that of the storm kings of old flowed through his veins. No swordsman, his lordship preferred to wield a double-bladed axe in battle. An axe, he oft said, large and heavy enough to cleave through a dragon's soul. And I, I can't help but think of, of Robert and, and his hammer, right? At the, mm-hmm. Not wielding a sword, but wielding some other kind of, of deadly weapon. And also, uh, the women and the drinking comes to mind quite a bit, too. Right. Yeah. 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 I thought about there were several parallels. Yeah. That war, the Warhammer uh, versus the double bladed axe definitely stands out there. And of course, you know, as you go through, even with the Duncan egg stories and so forth, the Baratheons seem to be a real, uh, you know, uh, Martin definitely has a real type with these guys. But, you know, he he talked about, you know, wishing that he had battled Magar one-on-one and uh, wanting to die in battle at the end. I mean, you would think that that's how Robert would have preferred to have gone out rather than, than uh, you know, being killed by the boar. Yeah. Um, his appetite for women, there was you know, just a lot of parallels with, uh, with our Robert Baratheon. Yeah. yeah, and even you mentioned Rogar wanting to take on Magar. Uh, you think of, of Robert uh, taking on Rhaegar. You know, uh, there's right. a parallel to that. Robert kind of achieved what Rogar wanted to achieve. True, true, yeah. Although yeah. Uh, Magar was obviously much more evil than Rhaegar ever was, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, right, that, that's true. Now, in talking about historical parallels with him, though, 
Uh, I did listen to uh, Steve Atwell of mm. Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. Actually, I don't think that's the right one, but you know, he's one he's one of those guys who has a wonderful blog out there and is gets really into the military stuff and the historical stuff. And he was looking at Rogar Baratheon again in a historical context with one of the the English kings or Edward the Third, whose relationship with his mother's uh, consort was really, really similar to what was going on with uh, Jaehaerys and Alyssa and Rogar. You know, it was a real parallel there. Mm -hmm. So, again, we have another example here. Uh, George was definitely taking some models from history and some of the things that happened there with with the English kings. Going back further, you know, just like we're going back into the history of the Targaryens, instead of being the War of the Roses, we're going back into more um, medieval times, earlier medieval times, to uh, to reach for these parallels for these earlier kings. But they're yeah. definitely there. Interesting. Very interesting. What else have you got for me here? Hmm. Uh, well, I thought that the whole thing with the war for the white cloaks that took place in the celebration, uh, part of the celebration for the Golden Wedding was really interesting when they were looking to find Kingsguard for Jaehaerys' first Kingsguard. I thought it was really interesting because we this is kind of directly in contrast to Visenya's wanting not to go that route when she helped Aegon form the Aegon the First form the first Kingsguard. He had suggested having a tournament to find the people who, who would make up his king's guard. And she didn't like that idea. She wanted people that were loyal to the king and uh, more than just the best warriors around. But the Visenya didn't go down that route. Now they're doing it here. So That is very interesting. Uh, and Jaehaerys' reasoning for this is from the book, uh, Men who would do harm to their king seldom attack on horseback with a lance in hand, his grace declared. And so it was that the tilts that followed his mother's wedding yielded pride of a place to the wild melees and bloody duels the maesters would dub the war for the white cloaks. One of the parallels to A Song of Ice and Fire that I found most interesting in this is when you think about the melees that Rinley himself was having and how Brienne ended up being named uh, one of the Kingsguard out of that because you get this uh, I, I love this figure even though she doesn't become a Kingsguard she, she's uh, the Serpent in Scarlet uh, right. Jacqueline Drake Dark uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, yes she's fantastic in this and, and, and when finally defeated and unmasked quote he proved to be a woman Jacqueline Dark the bastard daughter of the Lord of Duskendale um, I couldn't help but think about uh, Brienne and, and both in show and book. Um, what's remarkable, of course, is when you go onwards to the show itself. I mean, Brienne does actually become a Kingsguard, which I love. Right. Yes, definitely think about her when when you read about that character. For sure. And you can call me, you know, a lovesick maiden, I suppose, if you wish, Susan. But I absolutely Love the story of Jaehaerys and, and Alysanne and how they fell in love. Um, and, and and the way that the Kingsguard that were present at the time were defending Jaehaerys. It didn't matter what Rogar threatened or or, or bantied about. It, they, they were there doing their job. And I found more comparisons, I, I, at least as far as the show concerned. And we're thinking this is probably going to be the facts in the books as well as they're revealed later on. Uh, but uh, I find a lot of Rhaegar comparisons because you have that secret wedding in the show. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have Lady Stark, now Lady Targaryen, being defended by the Kingsguard, even as Ned is coming to try and find her and save her. Um, and here the Kingsguard are, are heavily defending Jaehaerys and Alysanne. So um, it's Florian and Junkle, it's, it's, it's Rhaegar and... Liana, it's everything, man. It's just like uh, history here is really kind of cyclic in a way. Maybe not exactly the same, but it, it seems to follow the same paths. 
Right. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting about their relationship is, or one of the things that's interesting, there's a lot of interesting, but is, you know, I, I agree that, you know, they're, they're kind of the model for the successful Targaryen couple. And, and there's a lot to like about them. And it, what it makes me think about is a lot of times when I'm reading things that are, are uh, fantasy or, you know, in different worlds and so forth, I don't really hold the standards of our world to that. And so, like, for instance, when we're looking at the whole, you know, John and Daenerys never bothered me because I didn't think about their relationship in terms of like real world issues. And so Jaehaerys and Alysanne, the same thing. And But yeah, yeah. So on one hand, I'm thinking, you know, I'm OK with this. I'm not thinking about it in terms of like we would think about a brother and sister marrying in the real world, because this is a fantasy world and the Targaryens are so different, and all that uh, that they talk about. But then on the other hand, I think, OK, should I be thinking that way or is Martin actually trying to um, make a statement as we go and look at so many of these couples that had all these strange and horrible things that happened to them. And, you know, is that any kind of comment on some of the inbreeding that went on in the, the uh, actual European families and how that had, you know, horrible results in many cases. And so I'm trying to kind of, you know, weigh those two ideas in my mind and it makes me think about it maybe in a different way than I would a traditional fantasy story where I'd just be able to kind of set some of that aside. I think he brings up a lot of questions there. And, you know, the whole thing with Annie's to begin with was, it did start this, basically this real descent in, in terms of uh, the, the faith of the seven, you know, totally leaving uh, their support of Aenys, which in turn, uh, and partially because Magar had taken a, a, a second wife, you know, all of these things were abominations to the faith of the seven. So those ideas are kind of a representation of our modern way of thinking as well, because of course those ideas would have been uh, terrible to the religions back in our real history as well, and still are carried through today. Uh, I think with good reason, <laughs> but, oh, yeah. but, you know, I, I, I love the parallels. George doesn't just let that sit. Well, they're Targaryen. I, I, I do love later on, we'll get into a, a rule that they came up with, which was an, I thought was an excellent loophole, <laughs> but, <laughs> right. uh, it, but I, I not necessarily saying that I condone that loophole, but I thought they, well, they, they, they thought that went out pretty smartly. Uh, right. Before they put it to the faith, uh, for as far as Jaharis and Alisane go, um, one of the things that I really like about Jaharis is even at this young age, I commented this on the podcast last week. He's just he seems beyond his years in terms of being able to one control his emotions <laughs> and, and two think things through and generally come up with a smart. Uh, kind of solution to any problems that are presented to him. Right. He's definitely one of those Targaryens that landed on the right side of the coin. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) If, if, if there's such a thing as a three sided coin, perhaps we should explore that because there are degrees of differences between one extreme and the other. But uh, I, I commented in the podcast last week, I felt like that Aenys and Magar were kind of like, if you combine the two halves of those, you would pretty much get, Aegon, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more to one extreme or the other, but right, um, you know, uh, Megar was decisive, but he was cruel. Aenys was in no way cruel, but he was indecisive. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, there, and Aegon was uh, neither cruel, but he was decisive and and seemingly fairly fair. And uh, this seems to be the first. Jaehaerys to me seems to be the first since. Aegon of people who are going to be called king um, that seems to have it more all together at this point. Right. Well, if I can go on to another parallel issue, and we're going to get into the third couple now. Like you said, we had the three the three brides, the three weddings here. We had uh, the one with Rhaenys and then Alyssa, and then now here with uh, Jaehaerys and Alysanne. I think that Alisan has again both an interesting real world 
parallel that you can look at as well as an in-story one. Um, I think uh, I have actually heard that uh, Martin said that he modeled her after Eleanor of Aquitaine. Hmm. And uh, she was a fascinating woman. Again, we're going back into the high Middle Ages. And uh, because she she was one of the most powerful women at her time, she was the most sought after bride. She was married first to the king of France and then to the king of England. But what's interesting, a few interesting things about her is that at one time she was in charge of this uh, court of love in Pontiers that she came from. And this court of love was supposedly important for popularizing the concept of courtly love and promulgating the court uh, code of chivalry and encouraging troubadours and romantic poetry and so forth. So you can look at how Eleanor, uh, how Alison was uh, incorporating some of the things uh, in the uh, in that realm into her world, and also then that brings it to the other book parallel of uh, Sansa. You have mm. Alison being like Elaine and Sansa, put her names two names together, Alison. Nice. Elaine Sansa. So uh, I think that there's many examples of the way that uh, Alison behaved as a queen that you could see Sansa wanting to kind of model herself after as she talked about wanting to be a queen who's loved, the way she held these women's courts and so forth, that I think you can see the parallels there. And when you go back again to Eleanor of Aquitaine, she ended up like Alison having, she had with her first husband, she had two daughters and then with the second one she had eight children three daughters and five sons so again this whole uh batch of of kids is similar again to talisman so there's the real real parallel with eleanor of aquitaine very formidable person and in story one with uh sansa i think both of them you can look at it's a fantastic parallel uh i i did when i when i saw the whole uh, Alisanne, um, I, I did uh, instantly think of Elaine from Feast, you know, Sansa's uh, the name that she has to go by. Right, right. And Florian and Jonquil seems to play a role in Alisanne's story as well as it does in Sansa's. True. And if this Jonquil Dark actually, uh, if, if Brienne actually does in the books become uh, Sansa's uh, guard as she did in the show, then, the, then that brings that additional parallel with, uh, with uh, that John Cole Dark and Alison. Excellent. And one last little tidbit about uh, Eleanor Aquitaine. Uh, apparently, Martin said that he particularly was struck with the fact that uh, there's a world famous uh, movie in came out in 1968, The Line in Winter, with Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole. And that's where Catherine is, Hepburn is playing Eleanor of Aquitaine. And she won the uh, Best Actress Oscar for that. So that's a really cool movie for people to check out. Excellent. All right. Well, let's move on to the next chapter, Chapter 7, A Surfeit of Rulers. Chapter 7, A Surfeit of Rulers. So to me, if 49 AC is the year of three brides, uh, maybe 50 we should call the year of three queens uh, because this really focuses on... Reina being the oldest and thought she should rule, and on Alisa, uh, uh, who is the queen regent, parents to Jaehaerys and Alysanne. And then you have Alysanne herself, who wanted to, of course, be with Jaehaerys and wanted to be his queen despite any consequence, and really shaped, as we will see, not so much in the same way that maybe Rhaenys or Visenya directly shaped things but uh in her ways and ways of setting precedent and in her influence over Jaehaerys did a lot for the governing of the seven kingdoms throughout her reign yes and one thing i noticed right off the bat here too is as you're looking again at the parallels with Jaehaerys and Rhaegar that you mentioned earlier i thought it was interesting here about when Rhaegar was really pushing himself to to train and become a warrior because mm-hmm. that reminded me of how you know when and when Rhaegar uh, read that prophecy and decided he had to be a, had to be a warrior 
it was not quite the same situation here. Jaharis wanted to do it so he wouldn't be thought about as a uh, weak like his father, but uh, kind of a similar scenario that he had to train himself to fill this role that he felt that he was destined for. Yes, excellent, excellent. Well, this is the chapter that starts to talk about Alyssa Farman's uh, mm -hmm. desire to sail uh, west of Westeros. Mm -hmm. And that got me thinking about the fact that it, Martin, as he puts out, put out his sample chapters, and as the Game of Thrones show was going on from season to season, there came to be a period of time where it almost seemed as if he was putting out some of his chapters almost either in response of or to get ahead of what was going on with the show. For instance, you know, he came out with the Sansa chapter that went in the Vale at the same time that we had the, the year where Sansa ends up being married to Ram Ramsey. Mm -hmm. And he came out with the Arya chapter in Bravos. Uh, the same season when she and the Hound had a similar fight to what she did in Bravos. Came, he came out with the Ariane chapter the same year that we had the kind of not so good Dornish season. Mm. So it, it it started to feel to me like you know I don't know how much at that point he was you know keeping up with you know, knowing in advance what, what direction the show was going in, what their storylines were. But uh, I'm sure he must have had some sense of it and it almost felt like he was kind of answering or wanting to put his information out there ahead of time. And I thought about that in terms of this um, Alyssa Farman and her wanting to sail uh, across the Sunset Sea, which is, you know, a rather adventurous, hardly anybody had ever gone in that direction. And he came out with the book prior to this season coming out with uh, Arya eventually taking that that journey. Yeah, that's interesting. I, in fact, <laughs> I mean, it feels like that these these first ten chapters of this book, and we'll be getting up to chapter ten, but there's kind of like this underlying propaganda for going west. In a lot of ways, because uh, Rainey's even had it's mentioned in one of the earlier chapters that Rainey's had an inclination to want to go across the the, the sea to the west. And uh, so it's, it's like this theme that just keeps being carried down. Uh, but we see it really being fulfilled, I guess, uh, for the first time by this Alyssa Farman, um, who ends up changing her name. We'll get into that in a little bit. I have I have a quote here uh, regarding Alyssa Farman and uh, uh, Raina in regards to uh, her marriage, Raina's marriage to the second uh, f uh, Farman. Uh, Oft times to the horror of her lord father and lady mother, she spoke of a desire to take a ship beyond the western horizon to learn what strange and wondrous lands might lie on the far side of the Sunset Sea. Um, this is, of course, uh, uh, speaking of Alyssa and, uh, the, the fact that, uh, Raina, uh, Raina, pardon me, said, no, 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 you're coming, you're coming with me. <laughs> uh, it's almost like, it's kind of like the, the dream delayed and we're kind of like going, oh, is she ever going to get to go? Uh, <laughs> and, and the way that she gets to go, well, we'll get into that here in a little bit, but I, I would just kind of like, you know, again, like you said, the parallels, Rainey's to Arya in the show makes me wonder if George really wants to talk about there being really something in between <laughs> uh, Westeros and Essos if you go west, uh, you know, to give himself even more to write about as if he doesn't have enough to write about now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it will be interesting to see. I mean, you know, we we're all talking about, you know, how much you know the show is a show and the and the books are the books and how much they'll be similar or different as these things uh progress so it will be interesting to see if anyone in the books does does head out that way i was uh noticing this is when we start looking at dreamfire laying eggs as well mm -hmm. they talked about the first uh a uh, batch of those, and it, it it also just made me think about the fact that uh, this Rada and her dream fire um, that 
she seems to be the one who started the tradition of putting the dragon egg in the cradle of uh, different children, that she had, in fact, done it in both the cribs of Jaehaerys and Alisan, mm-hmm. her, you know, her, her little brother and sister. And as a result, both of their eggs became the dragons that they were, were later on riding. So I just... Um, uh, we started to, to look at the significance of the dragon eggs here and and what happens with them. Yes, and there is more on that in a future chapter as well. But one of the things, one, one of the little side things that I found uh, both appalling and interesting, uh, I hate to put it in that way, but uh, this whole kind of tangent that Gildane goes off on in, in regards to the story of, of Lady Corianne of the house wild. Um, and then, you know, five, five, ten minutes after I finished the chapter, I was like, Oh yeah. Wild. Of course. Wild. Yeah. So they're going to think that she's wild, even though the, this, uh, this book, uh, a caution for young girls or, or some, some, uh, have renamed it to a wanton's tale. I mean, whatever you want to copy it, uh, call it, um, had to be recopied evidently because, we now know that obviously there are no printing presses in Westeros anywhere. Everything has to be recopied. And I guess books deteriorate and they had to be redone. And they were shunned. This book was shunned as supposedly written by this woman and then recopied by people who uh, probably added to the story or not. But he goes off on so many things with this that I can't help wonder uh, it's it's like, what's the point of bringing all of this up? How much of it is fodder? It, is the fact that it's getting played down so heavily by the maesters, is that, should that be a cause of for alarm for us? How much of the truth about Rogar uh, is actually in there? Uh, all of these things came to my mind as I was reading this, and I'm just kind of like going, maybe all of it's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, think about that. How many scribes had to sit and copy all that stuff, right? And right. they come up with all the copies of this book that was supposedly around in all its different variations. But uh, yeah, that was uh, interesting that it, it seemed that both uh, Rogar and uh, Alyssa took their own strategies for how they were going to try to prevent the moving, you know, Jaharis and Alison actually moving forward with this wedding. Uh, with her with this marriage and uh, they were both really uh, foiled in their attempts to, to throw a wrench in it yes the question that I kept asking myself during this chapter and it does uh, somewhat it, it seems pretty apparent after you've read several chapters further in advance but uh, I, I was asking myself this question why doesn't Jaharis just go ahead and tell the world that him and Alisan are married um, and obviously, this is another example of Jaharis making a very considered, very careful decision um, that ends up working out in his favor because he wasn't hasty. You know, he, he didn't he didn't say anything, even though word kind of got out ahead of him a little bit. Uh, I guess it wasn't to the degree that it caused the same kind of uprising uh, with the faith as uh, with the warriors sons and all of that had uh, with Aenys. True, yeah, yeah. Or Aegon and his sister, sorry. His strategies and how he does go forward with it, which I guess we'll get into you know, more in the next chapter, were definitely, you know, shows, shows some wisdom on his part in, uh, in how he you know, went about getting the, the realm behind him. Absolutely. What's another thing for you in this chapter? Uh, well, you know, we're hearing little bits of information about different things that are happening all over, all over the realm, too. And I do think that, you know, uh, the fact that you had the poor fellows, the warrior sons uh, going up to the wall in mass, along with uh, a couple of the king's guards that had turned from Nagar to, to support Jaharis, Je- but he wasn't going to keep them because he felt like he could not keep any king's guards who had, uh, you know, broken their vows. Uh, even if they'd done it for the right reasons, it still was, you know, problematic. So he sent them up there, and then they held hold these uh, rebellions up there, mm. uh, taking over castles, and they had to be put down by Starks and 
some of the Starks got killed as a result of that. And that, uh, you know, ends up setting up some bad feelings between the Starks and the Targaryens, especially some resentment towards uh, Jaehaerys that maybe isn't necessarily totally deserved, but uh, there's definitely some resentment there. But I thought it was interesting because, you know, they were talking about uh, this, the Stark was killed by giants. Oh, uh-huh. And it made me think about the fact that I think I first read this in the, I don't know if it was in The Princess and the Queen or The World of Ice and Fire. I think it might have been in one or both of them. And uh, again, um, maybe later on here, you hear this story later on of Viserys, like that Viserys the first, the night that he dies, he tells his grand, or the night before he dies or is found dead, he's telling his grandchildren the story about Jaehaerys going up beyond the wall and fighting with wargs and giants. And I always thought that was really interesting because I, then I was looking for, is, is, is there, are we going to learn anything about that? But it doesn't seem to be from anything that I've seen that, that there's any indication that, that Jaehaerys was ever involved in anything of that nature. So it kind of leads me to believe that 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 story that Viserys the first was telling his grandchildren was just one of these big folk tales like you know you have rulers who you want to make them larger than life so they sure. get attributed all these fantastic uh, deeds that they didn't even necessarily accomplish and until I read otherwise I don't think Jaehaerys ever went uh, beyond the wall and fought giants and war <laughs> uh, on the other hand uh, let me let me just as devil devil's advocate, maesters hate the idea of there being magical creatures. None of them can forge that that Valyrian chain link, right? Uh, they don't like to hire mysteries all that much, uh-huh. and uh, maybe they, they, uh, we even hear in our story proper about Lewin saying, "Oh, there aren't any more giants or any telling Bran all of this stuff." Uh, maybe all of this was omitted by Gildane uh, simply to keep the citadel truth true that's true <laughs> yeah I, i'm just i'm just kind of playing there but I, I, it's one of those things where it's kind of like you know we often uh i talked about this with kelly last week it's like you know we think of these maesters as being a more of a reliable narrator but are they are they really we don't know and, and the history is so long ago and things have been retold and everything uh i i love how uh how I can find myself questioning uh, Gildane <laughs> as, yeah. uh, as we go through this sometimes. And we're told constantly to take all of this with a grain of salt, you know, that we don't really know that any of them have the, the right story or the full story or anything here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, they do. They uh, Gildane does definitely uh, quantify his writings. He says, this guy said this and, and possibly this happened and possibly that happened. I, I like to tend to think that one of those things was true. And the, the omission of the giant story um, seems to be uh, one that you would point to as, uh, yeah, maybe that was just a made up thing. So I'm, I'm with you. I just like playing devil's advocate on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's t- it sounds like one of those tall tales, especially like you're going to tell your grandchildren, oh, your grandfather, you know, he went up here and look at these crazy wild things that he did and. Get the kids all excited and everything. And, and from that perspective, though, think about old Nan and ice spiders, biggest hounds. Right. You yeah. know, uh, you know. So who's telling the truth on anything? Because I know a lot of people put a lot of faith in ice spiders to the point where they were disappointed when they didn't see them in the show. <laughs> right. This is true. This is very true. <laughs> uh, I was ready for some ice spiders. Yeah. Everybody wanted <laughs> ice spiders. I wanted ice spiders. That's for sure. Yeah. Right. Uh, what else have we got on this chapter? Well, we have the fact that Rogar is very upset about the way all of these things are going down. So he started to take some questionable steps as his, in his role as the king's hand in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, wanting to potentially, because Jaehaerys was not going to go about things the way he wanted them to, or he, he got his pride hurt by the way that Jaehaerys thwarted him. He wants to supplant him with his niece, the area, and that doesn't work in his favor. So that he goes to try and get uh, his brothers to, to get her twin, Rayella, 
from the, the Starry Sep. So he started to really cross some lines here and do things that uh, were definitely beyond the bounds of what he should be doing in his role. Yeah, and I guess that's ultimately what ends up leading to his dismissal, uh, so to speak, as as the hand of the king, and and really puts a, a pretty good strain on him and uh, Elisa's, uh relationship for a little while. Yes, definitely. Let's move on to Chapter 8, A Time of Testing, The Realm Remade. Chapter 8, A Time of Testing, The Realm Remade. You know, this is the the time that uh, Jaehaerys comes from his self-imposed um, exile or extended honeymoon with Alicent at uh, Dragonstone, uh, comes back because he has reached his age of majority now. So he is no longer going to have to submit to a regent, and he will be able to be in charge of his small council and so forth. So he returns... King's Landing, and I think, you know, the the whole showy way that he did it, you know, coming in on Vermithor and flying around the city so everyone would have a chance to see him landing and uh, the way he greeted everyone and how uh, folks at the Red Keep were immediately able to to see how much he had matured in his time that he was gone. And he wasn't a young kid anymore. He was a young man and had uh, definitely uh, ready to take his his uh, role as the king. I love that you bring that up because I also had a note in here about how uh, Jaehaerys' arrival seemed very, um, very strategic in a lot of ways, not just to show his um, maturity, but also to show, well, a reason that people should fear him. I mean, swooping the dragons down, everything, everybody loves it, but also they're a little scared, right? And uh, Grand Maester Benefer, he recounts, uh, but on his sword belt, he bore Blackfire, his grandsire's sword, the Sword of Kings. Even sheathed, the blade could be mistaken for no other. A shiver of fear went through me when I saw that sword. And it reminded me of the statement that uh, Tyrion says in, in Season 8 um, a great deal. Uh, Every ruler must inspire a little bit of fear. He says that to, to Sansa. And she's about to tell him that, you know, there's a ruler that doesn't have to inspire fear. <laughs> uh, but uh, it just reminds me of how the Targaryens have always had, even even a beloved king like Jaehaerys um, has always inspired a little bit of fear. Some in a bad way, like Magar, but in Jaehaerys, I think in a good way. Right, right. I mean, they uh, spoke several times about his... Uh, the fact that uh, he was able to use his dragon to uh, show that there was no need for him to take harsher measures in many cases because the, the threat of the dragon was always there. Mm-hmm. Um, it made me think about the the, uh, the phrase of uh, speak softly and carry a big stick. Yeah. King Jaehaerys would, you know, speak politely to everybody, but he had the power of that dragon behind him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Show everybody the nuclear weapon and then speak kindly to them. Right. And I think that also he started to make some uh, changes on the small council right away that showed some of his wisdom. He uh, confirmed his mother's choice of her brother, his uncle, as the, the his hand at first, the uh, uh, Valerian. And um, then he uh, brought in the merchant from Pentos. Yeah, Rego Draz. Yeah, yeah, the guy with the Illyrio Mopatis uh, vibes, right? Mm-hmm, very much yeah. so. Yeah, self-made man with rings on every finger and despised as a foreigner. He sends off the septum that was so opposed to his marriage, who went off rather huffily with the whole thing. And even though Barth was not yet in a prominent role, he, he brought him in. Uh, right away, it makes you wonder where he he learned about him. Says so he brought him in from uh, from High Garden to to work on his library. Oh yeah, I don't know where he found him to be perfectly honest. Yeah, but as you pointed out about the the, the comparison between Illyrio Mopatis and, and Rego Draz, I even had here in my notes that uh, 
you know, Jaharis appoints Rago as the master of coin, and then centuries later, uh, Magistrate Illyrio Mopatis, he kind of allies with Viserys and Daenerys to return the Targs uh, to, to rule. Some of his other accomplishments that I, I love, though, was, was more of a humane nature. Uh, like he further uh, command, this is from the book, he further commanded the dungeons beneath the keep, the red keep, to be cleaned and emptied out, and that all prisoners found in the black cells be brought up into the sun, bathed, and allowed to make an appeal. Now, uh, that speaks to the name conciliator, if ever I heard. Yeah, and, and, and his treatment of Rogar Baratheon. I mean, with all the differences they'd had and with the fact that Rogar had taken some very questionable acts to the point where he himself thought that he was at least destined for the wall, mm-hmm. that the conversation that they had and how Jaharis said, you know, uh, let's you know look at it more as, uh, you know, friends who disagreed None of your, uh, you know, you, you you may have said these things, but none of your actions were significantly treasonous. At least he was able to excuse away the 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 worst of them, and basically, you know, said, you know, if you, if you are are you going to be my man now, and if you are, and you support my queen, and uh, to do these other uh, stipulations that he had, taking his, his, you know, going back to being a good husband to his wife. And uh, sending his brother into exile, he really kept him in a, a prominent position, and I think that showed some real wisdom that he, you know, saw the value in in doing that. Yes, Owen Baratheon, I guess, is who you're speaking of. There, he was allowed to take exile. Um, he never got a chance to return, or he never took the opportunity to return. I don't know if the ten years had been up yet or not by the time that he was killed. But I love that little, <laughs> one of the things that I love about this book uh, is how there are footnotes, <laughs> you know, uh, at the end of each uh, chapter. I, I love reading the footnotes. It's kind of like, oh yeah, I remember that number now. I forgot where it was at. Oh, I got to go back and look. And it's like, I love the little connections. It's like, I can't just put this in the story. I'm going to make you read it just like a historical text. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, George. <laughs> yeah. And another wise thing I think that Jaharis did was, you know, he sent off this uh, Celtigar who had, who had put in place all these different taxes that people had had a lot of trouble with. And the new taxes that they were imposing were on luxury goods, expanding buildings and things that, that didn't provide a hardship in any way. They were, you know, on things that people, if they could afford to spend the money on the items that were being taxed, they could afford to pay the tax. Right. And and this is also where we get into our loophole, the doctrine of exceptionalism, uh, where he sends these septons and, and septas out. Um, this is just strategically brilliant. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, again, we don't necessarily agree with this, but uh, I thought it was very smart. It's like, well, Valerians didn't, you know, them, they're not Andals. They're, 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 they're different. They've been doing this ever since the creation of their civilization. They're the exception. They're not the rule. You know, they're allowed to do this. Um, right. And as with all things, there was some resistance to that. But it seems like that these septons and septas that he chose did a very good job of, of spreading the word in order to kind of soften the blow that was coming. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It was a wonderful uh, marketing. They were promoting their idea ahead of time before they went to the septums and, and you know, tried to, and to get to get the church behind it. To get so, the church yeah. behind it. Exactly. Send about ahead. It, yeah, definitely. Um, a marketing strategy that many movie companies ought to follow <laughs> or maybe try to follow, but don't do so so well. The move of Reina is also interesting to me in this. Um, we've talked about Reina earlier, but uh, the fact that she now gets Dragonstone and um, she gets one of her daughters back. By the way, since you weren't here last week, I mean, is it not apparent to you that Rayla and Aria were indeed switched? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. especially yeah. when I read this chapter, it really hit home. It's like, well, maybe I need just a little bit more proof. But no, a- after the way Aria is, and um, later in another later chapter, you, you get her, um, you get Raina making up to, or visiting Rayla, I guess. Um, yeah, it's pretty clear that they were definitely switched. 
Um, we'll get into more on area as well in a later chapter, but, um, and, and, and certainly put the girls in, into roles that they were much better suited for and, and much happier. I absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, I don't, I still don't know who switched them or whether they just switched themselves. What do you think? That's possible. But I think also that it was kind of mentioned in the text that, uh, Raina may have had a hand in, in that, you know, she may have understood that her one daughter was not really meant for the life of a septa. And then the other one would do much better in that role. Did the switch for that reason. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I do think that her, her move to Dragonstone is very interesting. And also, uh, this may have been more in the previous chapter, but, uh, you know, I don't think we, we mentioned too much about how, you know, after she had left Fair Isle and went around from one noble home to another, how it quickly became apparent to her that all these people, the Lannisters and so forth, were really much more interested in her because of drag and the possibility of getting either an egg or being able to marry in and possibly have descendants who would have the ability to have dragons. So mm -hmm. she was very, very wary of that. Yep. When somebody's got a nuclear weapon, everybody wants one, right? Yeah. Uh, that that's for sure. Uh, I yeah, uh, casually rocking just about everywhere she went, they they would all you know. It wasn't that her her host was that large. That you know, they they either feared the dragon for it was you know taking away their livestock and what have you, or or they had inclinations to want something from her that wasn't a merely her company it was it was to get the eggs or the dragons so uh which proves to be a, a good foreshadowing in, in, for a chapter that we're going to be coming up with here pretty soon yeah yeah and as this chapter's closing um and we get uh and kind of close it with alisan's first pregnancy uh, there's also the talk about you know her wanting to beautify her court and to bring in uh mummers and brings in the first school and so forth and uh, I, I liked uh, Rogar's uh, response to that about, uh, you know, mummers are worth less than monkeys because both caper about. But if you're hungry, you can at least eat the monkey. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I prefer to think of Alisane as kind of like the very first first lady of the realm in that respect. She, I mean, she was much more than that, obviously. Uh, but she did also... I, I and and it seems to be because of her recalling of her childhood uh, when Aenys, uh, when her father and, and mother uh, had uh, similar uh, kinds of things, maybe not to the extent that she goes to, but had similar kind of things going on and remembering how happy that was and how she wants to make this place of rule a pleasant place to be, not something to be feared. I really admired that. Yes, definitely. Right. And again, that gives you those Sansa vibes. Yes, absolutely. Completely. What else on this chapter? That's all I have. Okay. Well, with that, we will move on to chapter nine, birth, death, and betrayal under Jaehaerys I. And that seems like a good place to take a break for this particular episode we will come back with chapters 9 and 10 of Fire and Blood on Thursday. I will once again be joined by Susan, who is at Black Eyed Lily on Twitter. She's a great follow for all things The Song of Ice and Fire, as well as Star Wars. She's really uh, quite an authority on the Star Wars franchise as well. So be sure to check her out on Twitter, again, at Black Eyed Lily. I know we jump around a lot, and maybe we're covering some things that feel more important to us than they do to you, but that's where you come in. If you have any thoughts on stuff that you feel like we missed or stuff that was brought to your attention during this read and you feel like uh, you want to hear our opinions on it, but you didn't hear our opinions on it, send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com, or you can tweet to at the letter B, the number four, the dragon pod on Twitter. 
Remember, you can find everything you need to know about the podcast, including the audio from the Symphony of Ice and Fire panel that we did at Con of Thrones. I was joined by Bubba and Catfish from the Joffrey Podcast and the wonderful Petra Halber from Watchers on the Wall. We all discussed the music of Ramin Javadi. It was a great deal of fun. Had a great time doing that panel. You can find the audio as well as the PowerPoints that were used during that panel all on one page, uh, a tab at the website, mattsaudioblog.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. That's going to do it for this time around. We'll be back on Thursday with our chapters 9 and 10 of Fire and Blood. Take care. Send tweets to the letter B, the number 4, the Dragon Pod and send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com.